Welcome to the podcast today. My name's Todd Fraser. Uh, it's my pleasure today to welcome Dr. Miles Conroy from the Department of Anesthesia at Geelong Hospital in Victoria, Australia. Miles is a practicing anesthetist and currently heads up the acute pain service for Bowen Health. Miles, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Todd. It's a pleasure to be here. Miles, can I start with your perception on how we control pain, both in the hospital and in ICU? Um, you know, it's one of the most ubiquitous symptoms that we have in acute health. Do you, do we manage it well? Um, well, I was going to sort of uh, not, not not get the machine gun out straight away <laughs> <laughs> and just say that it's a balance. You know, that analgesia is an important part of patient care, and that as often there is an intensive care, there's competing interests. And the typical one is sort of, you know, hypotension with the epidural or sedation with opioids. More often than not, I think when um, we perceive ICU to have done a bad job, um, there will be external pressures that um, push that outcome. And I'm talking uh, about, you know, managing hypotension with epidurals or, or reducing analgesia in an effort to have a patient more awake and preparing them for discharge. So... The, the reasons that they occur are fairly um, uh, explained, um, but uh, often we have a slightly different way of managing those issues. What ways should we be approaching this problem? What, what's the best way of managing that pain in ICU, do you think? Well, managing pain in the uh, anaesthetised or sedated patient, um, I think the principles are no different from us in anaesthetics. And increasingly we recognise that... Um, a more preemptive or, if you like, preventive approach to pain, that is having their pain well controlled, controlled whilst they're sedated, um, is likely to improve their pain into the long term as well as into the short term during that admission. So um, a typical example would be, you know, the, the decision to turn off an epidural while a patient uh, is receiving sedation um, I would, in fact, advocate in most cases that the epidural catheter, whilst it's left in, should be uh, utilised and ex- the benefit extracted. What are the, is there a best agent that we should be using? Um, yeah, look, that's a really difficult situation and I think it's uh, appropriate to different situations. Um, my... Uh, any, any discussion of opioids would be couched by the fact that um, adjuvants have been appropriately addressed. And uh, I think it would be fair to say in most acute care settings, and particularly in ICU, that um, adjuvants such as paracetamol and uh, anti-inflammatory medications are frequently overlooked. One of the things I see is the role for acute pain service is not the anti-inflammatories police. Um, because... They are the single most effective analgesic drug that we have available to us. And um, their toxicities, I think, are often overestimated. And so there's a lot of fear around the use of anti-inflammatories, which is a shame because if we don't use anti-inflammatories when they're indicated, we're exposing patients to potentially much worse analgesia, much worse outcomes, particularly in, say, after major orthopaedic surgery, as well as um, doubling the required dose of opioids. So um, we, we go around prescribing anti-inflammatories all day long and we've just audited um, a lot of our pain service activities and not found a single patient, uh, even our complicated thoracotomy patients, developed renal impairment during their hospital admission because of the use of anti-inflammatories. So I think if you carefully select the patient, um, 
they're safe to use and uh, and under underutilized. Do you think that that is an issue? You, you mentioned um, patient selection. There are ICU patients; those types of patients. Well, I think um, definitely you can say the patients that are not good candidates for anti-inflammatories. Um, that is the patient with pre-existing renal impairment. Um, or the patient, you need to clear a lot of fluid um, in a short space of time. So if you've got a patient who's retaining a large volume of fluid, like you do get in ICU or with pulmonary edema, I think um, those are uh, reasons to be cautious. But on the whole, I I would regard anti-inflammatories as underutilised for acute post-operative pain. And they're probably... The the population of patients that are not suitable for anti-inflammatories are... Uh, there's far more of them in the ICU, but we still find uh, cause to uh, beg our ICU colleagues to use them from time to time because I think the the risk of uh, a temporary reduction in, in renal impairment needs to also be balanced against the risk of potentially life-threatening respiratory depression. Is there a best agent? Uh, yeah, there is. It's celecoxib. You said, you said, <laughs> said with much uh, definity there. Um, yeah, because I've studied it all pretty in a lot of detail. And regards from the cardiac risk point of view, the best drug is naproxen, um, which is uh, possibly even cardiac protective, but close to placebo effect. Celecoxib um, is equivalent to naproxen in terms of cardiac risk in all retrospective studies but one where it showed a marginal increase in cardiac risk but all the other anti-inflammatories COX-2 or traditional anti-inflammatories both increase they all increase cardiac risk and it is in a dose related fashion Um, the problem with naproxen is you're about four to five times more likely to develop an upper GI ulcer and bleeding as a result so Putting it all together, I think celecoxib is the, um, the safest anti-inflammatory drug. That it's got... Um, we need to first accept that the cardiac risk is not uh, selective to the COX-2 class. It, 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 it applies to all anti-inflammatories, but not all anti-inflammatories are the same. And naproxen and celecoxib are the safest. There's a number of meta-analysis or retrospective reviews um, of the literature that would... Um, uh, corroborate with that. Um, Magedican in 2006 in the JAMA. And these are, they're all being published in very big journals um, with, you know, high impact factors, even though they're retrospective, because some of them have got millions of patients in them. Um, the most interesting thing about that is that um, there is something going on in the United States called the Precision Trial, which is... Um, naproxen versus celecoxib versus ibuprofen, looking at um, cardiac risk. And uh, this would hopefully um, put this matter to rest once and for all. But I think it is a Pfizer-sponsored trial, and they're aiming to recruit over 10,000 patients. Um, And I think they're looking at the elderly arthritis population. So it could be that the answer is only a year or two away regards at least in terms of gathering some prospective data regards um, celecoxib versus naproxen and cardiac risk. But, you know, I think uh, celecoxib will need to... Um, so naproxen will need to be a lot better than celecoxib 
um, before it can negate the upper GI risk. How do you use celecoxib? Celecoxib for acute pain, um, we normally only prescribe it for intervals. So um, we'll only give it for five days at a time and it'll prompt a review of creatinine or the indication for the drug in the first place because I think we want to avoid perpetual prescribing, particularly when patients are being discharged from hospital. With celecoxib, um, we'll usually try and use a loading dose. So if a patient's um, uh, undergoing surgery, they'll often get intravenous COX-2 inhibitor in the form of paracoxib in theatre, and I regard that as a loading dose. If a patient hasn't been given paracoxib, the typical adult dose I would give would be 400 milligrams as a loading dose and on to 200 milligrams twice daily. Um, there is a tendency to try and reduce the dose to 100 milligrams BD, but um, the COX-2 um, isoenzyme needs to be occupied by, I think it's 90% or greater to reach an analgesic effect. So with the use of anti-inflammatories, there is a threshold that you need to cross to get the analgesic effect. Um, and usually for adult patients, that's going to mean using a bigger dose. So, and also a loading dose. So the, one of the advantages of the traditional anti-inflammatories versus the COX-2 inhibitors is its speed to onset of effect. So drugs like naproxen, ibuprofen, which can be given you know, four times a day, they usually are effective within an hour or two. Celecoxib has a lag time um, of a number of hours and I think we can uh, better deal with that um, by understanding pharmacokinetics and giving a loading dose. The alternative for intravenous use is um, paracoxib. Paracoxib is only licensed in Australia for a single perioperative use. In Geelong Hospital, the acute pain service will use it in, um, outside of that approved indication and extend its use for patients who uh, we think will particularly benefit. Um, which I might add is fairly uncommon. Paracoxib um, has been shown to increase graft failure after cardiac surgery, and it seems to me, at least in where I work, that cardiac surgeons, having once been very keen on the use of anti-inflammatories, have gone off them altogether. I'm not sure about the safety of celecoxib in post-cardiac surgery patients, um, but I'm, I do know that paracoxib and its uh, oral equivalent drug, which is not available in Australia, valdecoxib, have been shown in two different prospective studies to increase graft failure and thrombotic events in cardiac surgery patients. Um, but uh, in the more general uh, cardiac, or the non-cardiac population, um, paracoxib, I think, is uh, rightly, widely utilised. So for one of those patients who can't take anything orally where paracoxib really is the only alternative, you might be forced down the PR naproxen line. Would that be right? Um, no, I don't use suppositories for in any form of analgesia. And really the reason for that is the absorption is unreliable. Um, there is no benefit to the upper GI tract by giving your traditional anti-inflammatory rectally. And in fact colitis and proctitis from the exposure of the drugs to the mucosa and causing um, mucousy diarrhoea is well known side effect of using repeated uh, rectal anti-inflammatories and really that's the reason why we've gone across to using um, intravenous paracoxib 
uh, repeat on a, on repeated occasions in highly selected patients. We um, don't advocate the use of uh, anti-inflammatories in suppository form because repeat dosing is, is associated with side effects and particularly it has no real benefit from the upper GI point of view. But the other interesting thing about the use of COX-2 inhibitors is this significant reduction in um, cardiac risk, sorry, in upper GI risk in terms of uh, ulcer formation and bleeding. And um, there's also some uh, reasonably good evidence in the form of one prospective trial, which I can give you the reference for, um, where the use of uh, celecoxib plus a proton pump inhibitor pretty much brings you back to placebo risk. And so um, even in patients who are reasonably high risk for upper GI ulceration, be it a past history of peptic ulcer disease or concurrent steroid therapy, we will often use a COX-2 inhibitor plus a proton pump inhibitor, and we do that with the gastroenterologist's blessing. All the gastroenterologists in our hospital I've quizzed on the topic, and they say that, um, that that approach is justified. The other issue is uh, paracetamol, particularly IV paracetamol. There seems to have been almost an epidemic of, um, of IV paracetamol prescription. Do you think that it has many advantages? Um, look, I don't have any uh, research data to support the assertion. We often use IV paracetamol in um, patients in the post-operative setting who have poor pain control, and the anecdotal experience has been very good. Um, it may be that the onset of effect of paracetamol is much faster when it's used intravenously, and uh, therefore uh, its effect becomes uh, more easily appreciated. But um, paracetamol, uh, I think, is the, the first step on the analgesic ladder, and... Um, we should not shy away from using it intravenously if the oral route is unavailable. And the bioavailability of intravenous versus rectal administration uh, is really a one-horse race. So um, the use of paracetamol intravenously, I think, um, should be encouraged whenever the oral route is not available. Um, I'm not sure if it's more efficacious than oral paracetamol, but... Um, Oral paracetamol is already widely accepted to have a very good efficacy and uh, even in addition to the use of anti-inflammatories, um, um, we're always keen to uh, not overlook the use of paracetamol. Um, when it comes to the choice of an opioid, um, sh surely uh, the use of a short-acting drug such as fentanyl is most appropriate for um, use in an intubated or sedated patient but it's uh, less, less so for the um, uh, patient who's awake. So I guess in ICU, the, we, we have a much, or in any uh, analgesic setting, we have a preference for longer-acting or hydrophilic opioids, such as morphine. Morphine's problem, of course, is the uh, metabolites that can accumulate, particularly in, in the uh, patient with multi-organ failure and in renal impairment. Um, and... and what we've done at Geelong is made a big push to use um, intravenous oxycodone as a morphine alternative in that situation because it has a lot less active metabolites but still has a reasonable duration of action. What, about what I'm particularly referring to there is titration of analgesia requires repeated dosing 
whilst the last uh, dose is still having an effect. So in the case of fentanyl, a drug which is rapidly redistributed in the body, its duration of action could be uh, accepted to be in the, in the range of sort of between 30 and 60 minutes. On the other hand, drugs like morphine oxycodone have a duration of action of more like three hours. So there's more opportunity for patients to titrate their analgesia and get effective analgesia um, by summation of the doses. Okay. You, what about the role of, of those ultra-short-acting narcotics? We certainly hear about them a lot. Uh, it's hard Such to just... Remy fentanyl? Yeah, exactly. It's hard to, to separate the spin from, from the reality at times. What's your um, perception? Yeah, I think uh, at least in the, um, in the non-cardiac surgery setting, Remy fentanyl, to my mind, is a drug that still is lacking in indication. It is well established uh, that uh, remifentanil is a cause of uh, opioid-induced hyperalgesia, that is significant worsening of pain and difficult to control with opioids after cessation of infusion. And I would regard, from the anaesthetic point of view, use of remifentanil in a patient who has ex an expected post-op pain requirement, um, I would regard remifentanil to be contraindicated. There is some evidence you can mitigate against that by the use of drugs such as propofol and ketamine, um, but uh, there is no doubt that uh, remifentanil is associated with op opioid-induced hyperalgesia, a form of tachyphylaxis, if you like. Okay. Does that extend to its role in procedural sedation, you know, for example, in bronchoscopy for, for intensive care purposes? No, I think there are some settings where remifentanil is useful, and, and I think bronchoscopy um, and uh, high-intensity uh, stimulating procedures, um, such as laryngeal surgery, um, I think it is appropriate. It's, it's good for avoiding a muscle relaxant um, and inducing apnea and very deep levels of uh, opioid effect, um, but uh, it certainly does complicate post-operative pain management. Yeah. You mentioned ketamine earlier, Miles, and I'm, uh, it seems to have made a bit of a comeback in recent times. What's its role in your, uh, in um, your armamentarium? Ketamine is uh, really one of become one of our most utilised drugs when um, acute post-operative pain is difficult to treat. Um, the kind of, kind of settings where I think it's particularly useful is opioid-tolerant uh, patients or patients with opioid refractory pain, uh, certainly patients with acute on chronic pain, neuropathic pain. Uh, it's useful or at least worth a try in uh, acute ischemic pain. Um, they're probably the, the key role for it, as well as it can be used to treat um, conditions like complex regional pain syndrome. So it really has come into its own. Um, the, the NMDA receptor um, which it antagonises is thought to be closely related to mechanism, mechanisms of opioid tolerance. Um, and might be an effective way of uh, getting analgesia out of opioids um, in the opioid-tolerant patient. Okay. Um, the contraindications which are frequently listed for ketamine, uh, I think, are more relevant to using it as an anaphylo, whereas we're talking um, sort of 0.5 to 0.3 milligrams per kilo per hour in the low-dose form. Um, most of the contraindications, such as ischemic heart disease or raised intracranial pressure, um, in the analgesic doses, I think, are only uh, relative contraindications. Um, D 
delirium and, and the, uh, the psychological side effects or hallucinations of ketamine are usually fairly easily treated when we're using as an analgesic by adjusting the dose or giving a very small dose of benzodiazepine. Most patients I find with ketamine who are having the psychomimetic side effects from ketamine are quite happy to recognise that ketamine is the cause of their floaty or uh, wicked dreams and um, and they're quite happy to accept the pain relief on balance. So we don't often have to cease ketamine because of uh, psychomimetic effects. It does raise that interesting conundrum that we have where pain is recognised as a cause of delirium in ICU, but so too is the, the, the therapies that we have to treat them. Do you have a view on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there certainly is uh, a problem there, and ketamine is probably not a good drug to start in a patient who is already confused. Um, but uh, often I think the glucuronide metabolites of morphine um, can be implicated in the causes of dysphoria and confusion, um, particularly the morphine-3-glucuronide, three, which is the dominant metabolite of morphine, uh, is a problem um, for causing uh, cerebral excitation. And uh, often we have found in our own experience of switching these patients who are confused on morphine over to IV oxycodone as an alternative analgesic has had, um, at least in our own uh, experience, quite a quite a, uh, a value in its use. Um, the other the other role there for the confused patient and wanting to take um, analgesic uh, well, centrally acting analgesics out of the equation is again to um, ensure the basics, um, make sure you've addressed the use of adjuvant uh, drugs such as paracetamol and anti-inflammatories and consider the use of regional anesthesia such as epidural insertion even after the surgery or after the uh, traumatic event. This concludes part one of our interview with Dr Miles Conroy. Stay tuned next week for part two. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not visit our website, www.crit-iq.com.au.